Um, it wasn't until I went to college, which I actually went to the University of Texas. <laughs> so that was just a place that was Am I very. To do something right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did kind of give me this stink eye. Well, I, no, I don't. I didn't mean to. That was involuntary. Well, that's okay. The listeners know that. Welcome to the BCS Race Talk podcast. This is James Cho. We have uh, with us today two guests. Uh, we have Andrea Pale and Melissa Hello. Silva. Hello. Did I get those right? You did. Okay. Yep. You nailed Excellent. it. Now, both of you guys are affiliated um, with a group that was formed a few years ago called BCSB The Bridge, right? And so um, I wanted to start the conversation off uh, with you, Andrea, because sure. you were one of the the founders of the group. And I know a little bit about kind of how that group started. But if I may, tell us uh, what the group was when you guys had, had thought, thought it up, as well as um, kind of how it all came together. Sure. I'd be happy to. Well, it was February of 2015, and there is a women's conference out of Austin called the If Gathering. And... Several of us, we, we actually were not necessarily friends, but women gathered together that attend Grace Bible Church, and you could essentially watch live stream as they met together. And so one of the sessions, there were women affiliated with the, the gathering that essentially modeled a race dialogue. It was a live recording of a racial reconciliation dialogue that was facilitated by a woman named Latasha Morrison, who is actually the founder of Be the Bridge nationally. And so at the time, what was happening nationally was was multiple kind of devastating racially charged events. Um, there was Michael Brown, uh, Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile. Several things were happening at, at the national level. And so they were these, these brave women. It was a diverse group of women that decided to step into these waters while being recorded live uh, throughout the U.S. and maybe even not, maybe even internationally, I can't remember. But we were watching as this took place, and it was daring and beautiful and messy and all of the things that you would expect it to be. And so we watched and were moved, of course. And at, after that, Abby Perry, one of the other founders, she initiated us having our own kind of dialogue and conversation. So. Latasha at that event made available a curriculum to uh, anybody that had, was interested. And so Abby initiated us gathering ourselves. And so we did uh, kind of take that next step of, in our own very awkward way, <laughs> three of us, pastor's wives at Grace Bible Church all happen, happen to have <laughs> names that start with A. We kind of reached out to um, friends of color or e- even acquaintances, sometimes uh almost strangers. So it was awkward and we stumbled through it. And our friends uh, and new acquaintances were very gracious with us as we invited them into this space, into this dialogue. So, so to back up a second, yes. the, this, this conference that you guys had seen was put on by a different church elsewhere? Yes. Okay. It's actually a parachurch organization called If Gathering. So okay. many different women for, th- from throughout the country attend and, and are kind of generational and denominational. And so we, we watched it and we were inspired. And so we came together Three of us, awkwardly for sure, three out of the seven of us were, were white. So we, we, you know, we were messy. We made mistakes for sure. Um, and I do want to give credit yes. to the people who had started it. So if you could actually uh, sure. give us the names of the people who had started yes. this group. Yeah, definitely. It was Abby Perry, um, who was one of the other friends and pastor's wives, and Amy McGuffey and myself. And then we invited in several friends, uh, Jessica Pace, um, Jenny Holberg, Carol Veal, and those... That was the beginning of our group. 
And so, yeah, so we we gathered together. Um, We had been meeting for a little while when Charleston then happened. And at that point, kind of the goal of the group had been established in that um, we had this, we began as somewhat strangers, and then we had this kind of shared experience of pain and lament and so we didn't know what else to do but to gather together when you're referring to the charleston event you're talking about the 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 shooting at the african-american church in charleston south south carolina north yes, carolina that's right I, somebody's get really mad to have mixed those up <laughs> one of the carolinas yes. Yes, south. yes south carolina i believe i should fact check that yes um but but I, but but yes i do remember that event and so so you were saying that that sort of coincided with it, it when did. things were coming together for the group yeah, and so we came We came together. We'd been meeting together, and so then we knew all that we knew to do was to grieve together and to lament together. We came together and cried and prayed with one another, and that night we were very much aware that we need to do something more. And so from that night, we had a discussion about hosting a community event where we could essentially model a roundtable discussion on a race dialogue uh, for a live event and provide resources, make people aware, raise awareness about the curriculum that Latasha Morrison had developed for, for Be the Bridge to Racial Unity. And so we did. We had a night in Amy's backyard. And, I do um, remember that yes. event, by the way. I was there. Did you attend? I did, yeah. Fantastic. So um, we, to our surprise, over 100 people. So you were one of probably 120, 150 people that attended. So we were quite surprised. And from that night, we never set out to establish a local Be the Bridge uh, group or um, a Facebook page for that for that matter, but we needed to have kind of a common area or kind of connecting point or home base for to communicate. And so from that, we hosted several community events and book discussions, including the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Um, around the same time, we a class at Texas A&M uh, took us on as a project, and they spread the word throughout the community about BCS Be the Bridge. We attended a vigil for victims of police brutality hosted by a black fraternity here on campus. We partnered with other churches to host events on MLK to read Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail and many other kind of books and discussions, movie viewings and, and discussions followed that you attended. So initially there was that one uh, meeting that was hosted in one of the mm-hmm. founders' homes, uh, and then it became a sort of an informal network of events. Now, Melissa, uh, when did you get involved? Were you part of the group? Did you know about it from the beginning since its inception? Yeah, so um, funny story. I actually had heard about the big event, the initial like kickoff of the event and I have had just had a lot of really hurtful experiences prior to that day like years of experiences that were really hurtful involving race relations Um, and so I just decided that I wasn't in a place to attend that event so I didn't Mm -hmm. however a lot of my friends did and they were sharing really great things that had happened that night and just hearing their conversation and hearing how there was such a desire and a heart to get to to the heart issues mm-hmm. revolving um, the the disconnect in race relations. Um, it gave me courage to then attend the next event that happened. And so I think I even sent a message to Abby. Um, there must have been an email. Somehow I got connected um in knowing that there was going to be um, groups that were going to get started. Mm-hmm. And so I think out of just this desire to like, okay, Lord, like let's lead, or, or for me to step out in faith and lead people, um, I messaged Abby and was like, I would love to be a part of facilitating a group if you mm-hmm. guys need people. And she said, yes, we would love for that to happen. And then after that, um, started leading a group of 
of women in the conversation um, through the curriculum that Latasha Morrison had created. So you mentioned um, previous experiences. Did you grow up here in College Station? I did not. So I actually grew up in South Texas um, in the Rio Grande Valley where the majority of the people who live there are Mexican, like myself, um, Mexican-American. And so I, um, for most of my life, functioned in the majority population. I mean, it wasn't until I went to college, which I actually went to the University of Texas. <laughs> so that was just a place that was Am I supposed very... supposed to do something right now? <laughs> well, you did kind of give me the stink eye. Well, I, no, I, don't, I didn't mean to. That was involuntary. Well, that's okay. The, the, the listeners know that. I only say that because I, I myself, I'm a grad student here at a and Okay, so, um, so you have other... I, I have other, I guess, institutional yeah, yeah. loyalties. Yes. So, speak, right? so I wasn't sure. I'm sorry. You went to the University of Texas. I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the University of Texas specifically is just a very diverse place. And so going from being the majority population um, in South Texas to this place that was really diverse, I think it really um, set me up to kind of examine my own identity and just who am I? Um, I I am Latina and I know that, but what does that really mean? And so through that, I just kind of began my own journey of understanding my cultural identity um, in the context of so many other people around me. And then actually after I graduated from college, worked with a contextualized ministry of crew called Destino, which um, reaches out to Hispanic college students. And that kind of furthered my own awareness of um, some of the ways that people myself included and people who look like me are marginalized Mm -hmm. Um, and then that really gave me a heart for social justice and how did you make it to college station i did um destino and bridges which is the international ministry of crew in dallas and really loved it but also um really loved it was just kind of a lot doing two different campus ministries. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the gospel does not change, but the mindset that it takes to connect with an inter- an international student and an American can just sometimes feel very different. And so I um, really wanted to choose just one movement. And I think because the Lord had already done so much in my heart through Destino, I wanted to focus on that movement specifically. So um, at the time, A&M actually had the largest Destino movement in the nation. Wow. Every um, Tuesday night, there would be like 150 Latino students who attended Texas A&M um, gather at the chapel. I'm blanking on the name of the chapel. All Faith? All Faith, yes. On campus, the All Faith Chapel? Yes. Um, and I knew the leaders of the movement, Christine Eric Robinson, um, and had really good connections with them. And Christy had actually been a really significant part in, in my cultural identity um, growth that I really wanted to work under them. And so I decided to come here and just really grew um, as a person, as a Latina, in yeah in this space here. Um, so A&M does have a really special place in my heart mm-hmm. because of that. Um, and so that was actually eight years ago, and I just have not left since. So it's uh, ironic. Yeah, mm-hmm. as I understand it, um, Texas itself is a majority-minority state. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bryan College Station area is not. However, A&M does have a very sizable uh, Latino-Latina population yes. on campus. That's great. And so <clears throat> that's how you got here. And uh, 
several years go by and then and then BCSB the bridge comes on 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 your radar yes. um, as it did mine I can't really remember how it is that I know I, it is. I, I don't remember <laughs> how I learned about it probably through yeah. some some social network uh, some somewhere so what one of the things that we we've sort of established uh, without actually having to talk about it uh, so far is is this idea that a lot of the the goals of, of BCSB the bridge and the folks that uh, are and were were working on it um, were response were responses to uh, what was happening mm-hmm. at large uh, across the nation. Several different, very high profile instances um, of of racial violence and uh, racial tensions. Um, so I I am curious um, mm-hmm. if I may uh, sure. direct the question back to Andrea. Uh, how it is that you and 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 the and the other pastors' wives that had started the organization felt like those things that were happening were relevant to your context and your situation here in Bryan College Station? Sure. I mean, I think it's relevant. I guess this gets into why why is it important <laughs> yeah, to each of us. I think there, yeah. it's why I think you're asking more or less the question, especially as pastors' wives. We have our identity primarily founded in our faith. And so I think if we think about why did it matter for us to respond, I think it should matter to everybody to respond because of our shared humanity. <laughs> so I feel like it should matter to all people, but especially because of our identity uh, based on our, our faith in Jesus. In particular, it mattered. And um, I think the more essentially that I grew in my faith and, and grew in my understanding of Imago Day, which is essentially that all people are created in God's image, regardless of differences, <coughs> regardless of any, whether ethnic, racial, religious, orientation, all of it. Also, understanding that our identity essentially sh- changes our worldview. So our actual identity, we having been reconciled, then become reconcilers. We having been healed by our faith, then are healers. And so we we are comforted to comfort. And so these things were absolutely uh, true of who we are based on our personal faith. And so the response is not just, uh, we're not just compelled by our faith, but it, we're obedient to, to our faith and to what, what our faith says, which is the Jesus way, which is, that's his ethic. Therefore, it's our ethic. And so, um, yeah, we were definitely moved to our, to our response here and in, in our local community. So, so there is a direct um, uh, line between the the tenets of, of of your faith, reconciliation and healing, and mm-hmm. and and looking for places where that needs to happen, and, and understanding that that race relations in the United States is one of the places that that needs to happen. For sure, and it, it's not it's not just. Um, it's not a social issue. I think that's, I think, where we kind of lose ourselves in the conversation is it is, it's a gospel-centric issue because we do believe that all are created in the image of God. And uh, therefore, we, we are in this together. We belong to one another. And so we come alongside when we see pain. We, we come alongside people that are disenfranchised. I mean, we look to Jesus as the example, essentially. And, and to kind of circle back to that question, I would say, I think my eyes started to become open even as a college student, not necessarily to specific examples of police brutality, um, but as a college student, as a 19-year-old, I became involved in a ministry called Youth Impact. That's a local ministry, a mentoring program for vulnerable children and families within the community. And so I went into that organization as a, as a 19-year-old, um, really like a, a Christian kind of uh, humanitarian, so to speak, and I was going to go in and save 
you know, the world with my good intentions. Now, and you I moved think, into Bryan College Station to go to Texas a and Yes, yeah, yes. Okay. And so I became involved in this mentoring program thinking I'm going to, you know, with good intentions, I'm going to go and impact, um, you know, just lives uh, and quickly realized that my life was the most impacted because I was confronted with my own biases, for one, and I began to become very aware of um, the disparities disparities that exist for people living at and situations and, and realities that are very different than my own. And so that was at 19. Um, by the way, I met my husband that way as a baby 19-year-old, Ryan, who went on to direct that particular organization for 15 years before moving into his pastoral role. Um, but I, through proximity, through becoming uh, connected and in relationship with people, um, that I had just this intention to go help and save, ultimately, I became very aware of, of my own um racism and became very aware of the fact that my racism is not just individual but systemic. And so w- through that process of learning and discovery, recognizing how it, it impacts es- essentially the policies that we create, it impacts uh, the ways uh, that we fund schools, speaking to Melissa as an educator, um, the way that we approach zoning issues, um, the way that we design, do city design. So all of this became a part of just uh, discovery for me, recognizing kind of the systems issues. And then with that, when you're in relationship with people, you hear about the personal acts of racism or microaggressions that they experience on a daily basis. So let's unpack some of these terms that you sure. use, and both of you can chime in here. Um, the This idea that there was a difference between a personal prejudice or racism and a systemic level racism. So um, help us understand what the differences are between those two things. The difference, uh, personal versus systemic, um, I, I think that, well, people are made of, systems are made of people. And so ultimately, I think, I believe that each one of us, uh, because of our nature, we have natural prejudices where we where we believe, um, you're pointing to me, which is so funny. I think each one of us uh, have an, a norm. You know, we each have a belief system uh, that says this is what's normative. And so therefore, whatever we see or experience outside of that norm is whatever other or whatever difference, therefore, is, has like an attached, I think, value to it. And typically, it's it's less valuable to us. And so uh, beyond that, it's, it's um, I think, again, systems are made up of people. And <clears throat> so you have a collection of people that are ultimately making decisions that affect other people based on biases that they may or may not even be aware of that are, could be completely implicit. Uh, but those implicit biases that we don't necessarily take time to analyze or recognize or identify within ourselves ultimately will show up. And they show up in the ways that we operate and the ways that we interact with other people and the ways that we make decisions and our decisions ultimately do not just affect ourselves. Our, de- our decisions affect other people. And depending on what career you're in or field you're in, your decisions have a lot of power. And specifically as a, as a white person, my decisions have uh, more, even more power because of the pr- privilege that I have um, being in the majority culture. And so I hope that unpacks a little bit of, of the individual versus systemic. Mm-hmm. part of racism. I also, I remember I went to a, um, a conference actually a couple months ago and it talked about systems, but the system that it was particularly talking about was education system. And in this conference, they made this comment that I'm going to remember forever. Um, that was systems don't fail. They fulfill what they were designed to, to fulfill. 
Um, and so that really hit me like a ton of bricks because I do work in the education system. And so knowing the roots of that particular system of how when it was first created, it was created for um, a white context mm-hmm. and how I think that even present day you see the disparities in the ways that there's a disproportionate amount of children of color who are continually um, placed in alternative schools and then ultimately the whole school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, it is heartbreaking to see that I think that when the initial system was created, I want to believe in my heart that there wasn't this desire to not be inclusive of all people hundreds, if not, you know, like so many years later. Um, but the reality is because that system was designed in the way that it was designed um, with the particular audience that it was designed for, it does have an impact um, years, years later. Um, and I think that that is just one example of a system that um, it's easy to just look at the education system and like, and just kind of accept, like, yes, here's these kids. There's a disproportionate amount. Like, well, what are you supposed to do? Can we can we set some can we set some general sort of uh, uh, assumptions here? When you say what are these things that you you're referring to in terms of of, of um, things that were designed for a particular group of people or disparities? What specific um, markers are we talking about here? When the thought of so with education, when the thought of education system was created, people created opportunities and spaces and um, the realities that existed benefited the white males that were initially educated. When white people are educated, those white males that were educated initially um, got educated and they were able then to potentially be in leadership positions to then make other decisions for education and the cycle just continued Mm -hmm. to where that even now the amount of um, Hispanic and Latino men and women, the amount of educators in that field is low, not because Hispanic and Latino men and women do not care, but because the um, parameters through which education exists tend to be very white culture but then they are just identified as what is normal for education. And so, for example, when a person of color, um, which we see the disproportionate amount of um, disciplinary placements for these mm-hmm. students, go and have to operate within a, a norm that is different from the norm that is true of their day-to-day life, then it provides a wall for them where they have to, on top of learning the school norms, um, just as how am I supposed to sit in a chair? Mm -hmm. How am I supposed to um, solve this math problem? How am I supposed to ask for help? How am I supposed to do all those things? There's so many tiny parts of what we ask them to do daily, that it is mentally exhausting Mm -hmm. for them to um, learn this new culture. Um, And that's, I think that I've had the privilege of traveling to different countries where I can see that there is a very um, clear distinction between the way that um, children in Turkey are educated. And so it just 
is an interesting reality when we're in America and you have such diversity, but you have diversity in Turkey too, mm-hmm. um, but in the way that in America there is such diversity, but then for at least the education system, the realities of sitting down and not um, and working independently, those kind of values are f- more favorable to the white culture. So you're saying that in one one sense, um, we we think of these things uh, being independent or, or 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 being socialized into how you ought to conduct yourself in uh, the classroom are things that we expect of all children, um, and, and perhaps for good reason. But that you're saying that there are things that are that are expected that um, are uniquely uh, the the spaces where white children tend to thrive more because they've been uh, socialized into it earlier or they or or it sort of privileges that space yes that is exactly what i was saying <laughs> well i i'm just trying to, to to wrap my head around it and then make it accessible mm-hmm. to both to me as well because mm-hmm. although I, I i am also an educator it's mm-hmm. my education is is i'm, I'm a content expert mm-hmm. as opposed to an education expert i don't mm-hmm. know if that makes sense right i mm-hmm. research something and then i say this is interesting if you want yeah. to know about it you know I'll talk about it, but mm-hmm. actual education stuff, especially on the grade level, mm. it's not something that I know very... The grade school level, rather, it's not something that I know very much about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to go back to something, uh, go back to Andrea <coughs> yes. and, and ask something about um, the, these unconscious biases. Sure. Things, right? And so uh, in my experience here in Bryan College Station, a lot of the people that I've met, uh, whether they're white or people of color, have, have generally been very nice. And, sure. Uh, I'm not a, a native Texan, right? And so... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, I when I came here, it was there was a bit of a culture shock. I came here directly from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not where I fr- I'm from, but I was I was there for several years. And when I got here, um, a lot of culture shock. Uh, people are very nice. People are very friendly. Tell us exactly what what that looks like for somebody to. I, I, I'm not necessarily saying that it's hard for people to accept that they're unconscious biases. Sure. But tell us how it is, um, and maybe you can speak from your own experience of coming to those conclusions. For sure. How it is that that you under, that you're able to see those, and and mm-hmm. if they are there, how is it that they are problematic or reinforcing this whole system thing? Like you right. say, systems are made of people, right? That's so good. so draw a line between between any potential unconscious biases that 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 we may have to how it can potentially concretely affect um people in in systems for sure i'll speak from my own experience um that i still have to actively resist and in order to be anti-racist we have to identify it within ourselves and actively move and and push against that belief uh, that is there that exists um, which we have to name. We have to begin to name it. And so um, one, I would say, uncon- unconscious bias that I have personally that fits into kind of a larger systemic issue is the criminality of, of black men. And so uh, an example was that maybe I'm thinking it was South by Southwest. I was walking with my husband um, through the streets of Austin, and there was a, a group of men, of black men specifically, standing in the street, and I found myself grab onto my husband's arm as we were walking through the traffic within the street. I found myself grab onto his arm. And it was just an it was an unconscious, just kind of an automatic response based on uh, the criminality of black men, which is a systemic issue. And that's based on media, 
Um, it's it's there are all kinds of things that go into um, into that particular issue as as a system, but I found myself responding in a way uh, that so if left unchecked, that particular belief um, or fear that I have that is uh, that I don't resist actively then becomes a shared fear because we're in community with other people. And so this is when oftentimes there are side conversations or there are comments or, and and it happens all the time. And I'm within a church context and sadly it happens within the church context um, often where there are conversations or just side comments um, that ultimately perpetuate this false belief or narrative about an entire population of people being black men that will surely then they're criminal. So, or you're driving by, a street corner and you lock your door um, or whatever it is. So another time recently, I can tell you that I was on an airplane. I travel for a living. I'm a consultant. And and so I was on an airplane and I was sitting next to, in this case, it was an Arabic man. It was a Middle Eastern man that was um, speaking and reading Arabic out of his Quran. And he was kind of mumbling it to himself and his leg was kind of shaking as he did so. And my immediate, my automatic response in this case was to fear and to think, okay, well, this could be a terrorist. Like I could, this could be my last moment, my last few moments. And to, to be, again, to become anti-racist, I had to identify that, feel that within myself, confess it ultimately <coughs> before God and say, forgive me. This is a person, again, created in your image whom you love. Um, and to, to dignify him and to communicate uh, value, I intentionally therefore made eye contact smiled, engaged him um, to move against that natural kind of unconscious bias that I was facing. But but how my individual response to him impacts systems is that you, if I was responding to him that way, as, as a Christian, as somebody who believes <laughs> uh, in the Jesus way, if I'm responding to him that way, how many other people in his path that day at the airport or on the airplane had responded to him um, openly? Wow, my initial response there is that that's a very, I'm very, I'm a little taken aback by how readily you would um, admit those biases, quite honestly, mm-hmm. um, only because not to say that those those don't exist, but it's not something that we want to, nobody wants to admit that they have racial biases, mm-hmm. right? Nobody mm-hmm. wants to admit that thing, you know? Sure. Um, and. Uh, we all want to think that we're above that, right? And and for somebody to admit that they had this knee jerk reaction is there's a lot of um, I don't know potential you know judgment that could be rained down on somebody for admitting something like that. Quite frankly, sure, sure. Is is my is my initial reaction to that? But um, it's I think it's it's where we start. I think if we are unwilling to acknowledge what's in us, then then we don't go anywhere in the conversation. And you can read all the books that you want. Um, you can attend all of the discussions that we offer. But if we are not individually willing to identify what is in us um, and in terms of our own biases and acts of, uh, of racism, um, then we're not really going to move anywhere in the conversation. And certainly we are not going to be peacemakers. It takes it takes a lot of uh, foresight and, and, and intentional reflection to be able to understand and identify your own weaknesses. For sure. Nobody wants to be told that they have a particular weakness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially if it's something that, that you care very much uh, about in your case, right? Um, 
So how does how does that happen? How do you how does somebody how does one, not necessarily just white people, but how how does one begin to identify those things? Yeah, I mean, and I'm glad that you said that because I think that it is a humanity thing, where we tend to look at someone who is different from us um, and our preferences, and discredit them as not being um, enough, essentially. Um, and so I think the first step is to be aware of them um, and to move towards people who are different from you, even if it is uncomfortable. Um, and I think that truly awareness is the first kind of mm -hmm. step forward um, in that because out of that then you can take action. I think action without awareness mm -hmm. is kind of messy and I don't think that it's as genuine as um, the heart behind wanting to connect with people um, is if if you move just towards action and not really or um, walk through this awareness of yourself and your own preferences. I think that, yeah, even as I'm like processing this, I think one of the first step is to know yourself. Mm -hmm. know, know that what you believe and what you think isn't what is normal. Um, whether you're white, whether you're Asian, whether you're Mexican, whether you're black, I think that there is beauty within each of us as people. Um, and no person is is the norm. Mm -hmm. For sure. I do want to pick your brain a little bit more, uh, Melissa, about uh, uh, something that I, I um, envision this is a, a, a thought process that a lot of people potentially, um, white people may have when they're confronted with this problem, with mm -hmm. this idea that they have unconscious biases and things, right? And it's this idea that, 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 I, that it, it comes out in a few different ways. One, um, there is a little, there's an equalizing thing where we say, well, everybody has these biases, mm -hmm. right? Or, 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 or it may come out in a different way to say something along the lines of, of it's gotten to the point where we as, as white people feel like we are the ones being targeted now and, and, and unfairly attacked or marginalized. Um, so w what, are, what are your thoughts about that type of, of, of um, response to uh, any conversation about personal or systemic uh, racial marginalization? Um, I'm pausing, and you're going to have to edit this out, because I feel like even as you're asking this Provoking. question, I think that I'm in my mind, I'm like, what can I say? Mm -hmm. Because so many of my, which maybe you don't have to edit this out, but like, I think that the question is hard to answer because... In my experience, when the question, when the posture is similar to the question that you just asked of, mm -hmm. of people feeling attacked, mm -hmm. I think that it hinders the conversation from moving forward um, because there are hard truths and realities of the history of our country, that if we are not honest about them, mm -hmm. then the conversation is just can't really move forward. The conversation becomes stuck. So I think that part of moving away from your biases and moving towards reconciliation, it's okay that there's a grieving period of, of recognizing that there are things that have been unjust in this country 
and that not everyone experiences America in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that in my experience with people who have a posture where they say, I don't understand all of what you're telling me, or I don't understand all of what I see in the news, or I don't even understand why I should care about reconciliation, but can you help me understand? Mm -hmm. Um, In my experience, that posture has made the conversation flow in a way that is still hard. It's never easy. These conversations are never easy, but it allows people to share honestly um, and for a deeper sense of learning to take place. One of the things that that it seems as though it, when we have these types of conversations um, about uh, differences in experiences is, is we don't know where it is that we need to even start because sure. we're operating on such different um, sets of understandings. Mm-hmm. So, so I teach speech. One of the things that we we try and and teach students when we're talking about persuasive speeches. Uh, is and I think I mentioned this before once in one of the Be the Bridge uh, events is that there are differences between persuasive speeches about fact, value, and policy. Right. Mm-hmm. So fact is 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 whether something is or isn't true. It's it's fairly simple, right? Uh, persuasive speeches are speeches about value. So mm-hmm. you're trying to persuade somebody not that something is established or not, but mm-hmm. a value thing. Something is good or bad, or something is valuable or invaluable, or mm-hmm. ethical or unethical. And then you have speeches about policy, uh, which are speeches about actions, specific courses of action to take. So I think that um, it, it sounds like conversations related to this particular topic across people who are different um, uh, racially or otherwise is, is we need to, co- uh, to get on the same page in terms of, of facts, right? Mm-hmm. A set, the same set of assumptions, right? And those assumptions can be as simple as, is it factual or established that racial inequality has existed in the past? And is it something that is still affecting us today? And it, does racial inequality still exist today? So for me, that's what it really boils down to is if, if there is no agreement on those particular sets of facts, then any conversation that, um, that takes place uh, on top of that, sure. it, it may not be very constructive, sure. right? Because you're operating on different <laughs> assumptions based upon different understandings of, of, of these facts. And so while facts are certainly facts, um, if we don't have those sets of understandings or those those historical stories or, or numbers or statistics that we're operating on, then then our belief systems, the way that we approach problems, what we think the problem even is, sure. may potentially be different. Absolutely true. I think what I see a lot also um, from the white community that's dangerous as it relates to facts <laughs> is that uh, information can be used to, to prove or disprove anything. And so people oftentimes use statistical data to confirm even their kind of information bias one way or the other. And so totally agree. Um, but what I see oftentimes is, is people just kind of um, just pulling whatever source that they want to, to kind of essentially validate their belief system, whatever, whichever way that is. And so I think that's why proximity is so important as we enter this dialogue. The closer that we are to something, the better we understand, and in, in this case, someone. And so relationship is really important um, that we enter relationships with people and we take the time, especially I'm speaking to the white community, <coughs> that we take this the time to, to, and the posture, as Melissa, you said so beautifully, that we posture ourselves to be listeners, that we humble ourselves uh, 
to hear the hard things, even uh, when we do have that sense of defensiveness that we feel within ourselves, which we call white fragility, <laughs> that we that we take the time to really listen uh, to, to the lived experiences because you can't argue with somebody else's experience. You can argue with an article that you find online, but you can't argue with somebody's lived pain. And so we have to lean into that pain. We have to listen to that pain. And we also, I think, have to evaluate the relationships that we have with people of color because I think that is kind of the first response now that we hear is relationships. But I think even in our relationships, um, I'm speaking again to white people, I think we have to be very careful that we aren't in relationships with people of color that simply confirm our bias because I think that's happening quite a bit also. Yes, and I think also even within the relationship, I think that even though I am Latina and that is a part of who I am, it is, it is just a part of who I am. And so um, to be friends with me means to also ask me about my job or ask me about my family, Mm -hmm. not just to learn about what Latinas in America think because I only represent one. Um, And so I um, really value friendships with all people um, who who want to know me for mm-hmm. all of who I am. Um, and then even just thinking if, for the listeners who are like, well, I don't know any people of color, where can I start? Um, there's an amazing book called I'm Still Here by Austin Channing mm-hmm. Brown. Um, and she walks through her life as a black woman in all these different white spaces. And so she talks about how her parents are both black, but how one of her parents live in a predominantly black community, and then the other, her parents separated, the other um, parent lived in a predominantly white community, and just how she navigated both of those communities, and then throughout her experience in education, and in her job, um, and in various jobs, actually, um, they were in predominantly white spaces, and so it, it gives such a clear insightful picture Mm -hmm. of just kind of the inner dialogue that was happening in her um, day-to-day realities, which are not the exact same for every person of color, um, but there are a lot of similarities of of realities, of experiences that she shared in that book. Uh, I remember when I read that book, I underlined almost everything because (laughs) her experience in a lot of ways... um, mirrors some of my different experiences. I think it's very easy to 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 categorize somebody who we don't uh, come in contact with on a regular basis, whether that's an XYZ thing, right? Um, race, uh, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so uh, sometimes it's very difficult for us to to remember at, at a knee-jerk you know, glance or a knee-jerk reaction or in in short interactions with people to understand that that you as a Latina woman have, uh, you're, you're defined by that to, to a large degree, but that there are various other identities and experiences mm-hmm. and um, uh, hats that you wear, so to speak, mm-hmm. that makes you a very complex character. And the best way to figure out what that looks like is to, to be in proximity, as Andrea said. One of the things that you said is you, you, you can't take away somebody's experience. Right. And one of the things that I like in that, too, is if you're in an interpersonal relationship with a friend or a, a spouse or whomever, and that spouse or friend comes to you and says, this is my experience of what you have done, um, it is one thing to say, I'm sorry, you know, I'm going to listen to you, I'm going to do better next time. And then, it's another, and then another response can potentially be, I think that you are just being too... 
um, uh, sensitive about this particular thing or that's not what actually ended up happening. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I, I liken it to that because those are two different ways that we can probably approach issues related to a, a set of experiences of people and you sort of blow that up on a macro level, mm -hmm. right? Um, real quickly, so I do want to go back to, I want to go back to BCSB, the bridge. Melissa, has, has the focus of of BCSB The Bridge changed since its inception and since you are, what, what is your title now? What do you even call yourself? You're the... I'm just a person. You're the person. <laughs> well, you're kidding. the person, well, as I understand it. She's... <laughs> yeah, I think so... She's the queen. <laughs> um, so I... Yes, Be The Bridge, to answer your question, yes. Be The Bridge has kind of evolved. Um, and it's actually in process, even just as we speak. I think when we first started... Um, it was very much a um, event, so to speak. We would have these um, events where we would, where a lot of people from the community would come. I feel like we would fill Amy's house um, where people would just listen to roundtable conversations. Um, but throughout the years, it has moved from Be the Bridge kind of functioning as a community resource to point people to other places and spaces within the community that are also doing racial reconciliation um, things or who are celebrating um, different cultural realities. And so when um, in September, when it's Mexican Independence Day and all the, a lot of the Independence Days of a lot of the countries in um, Latin America and South America, um, there's a parade called Fiestas. Um, Petrius. I'm struggling on how to pronounce that. That's a little embarrassing. But, um, yeah, just kind of leading the community and just like, hey, if you want to experience a different culture, here's a space for that. Um, when MLK is comes around, connecting the community to the churches in town that are having a reading of, the, of one of his speeches. And, and that's not to say that those are the only two days that we care mm -hmm. about those sure. things but how there are people that are in the community that are also wanting to have this conversation. And so we are going to connect you to those um, places because Be The Bridge is not the end-all, be-all of mm -hmm. all things racial reconciliation. Um, there are probably other several spaces and places within the community um, that people are having these conversations. So it um, used to be this. So it used to be this organization uh, that would have its own uh, meetings, these mm -hmm. these these larger meetings, and then had some breakout groups, as I understand it. But mm -hmm. uh, you are pointing to a lot of other places in town that are already doing these things, mm -hmm. and so the BCSB, the Bridge Group, is is moving towards a direction that where where you are able to connect people to to resources and events and things happening around town dealing with racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think it's also. It's partly because, one, we don't want to feel like we have to reinvent the wheel if other people are already doing things. Um, and two, I think even at a national level, there are several people that are just kind of questioning what is the next step. Mm -hmm. We have had a lot of conversations. We are continuing to have conversations. And conversations are good, but what is the next step to continue to move the conversation mm -hmm. forward? And so I think with Be The Bridge, that's where we're at also. And we're okay with that. I think mm -hmm. that there is sometimes this unrealistic expectation of ourselves as people to have everything figured out with with 
how racial reconciliation should look like, Mm -hmm. how it needs to have these three things and don't do this and do this, but maybe not that. And it just Mm -hmm. can become very, um, like, if we're not careful, legalistic Mm -hmm. um, in some ways um, and or pragmatic. Maybe Mm -hmm. pragmatic is a better word. Um, when we forget the people, right. that these are these are actual people that we're talking about. We're not just, I mean, yes, there's policy. Yes, there's history. Yes, there's all these other things. Um, but people's lives are also being impacted. Mm-hmm. And so we're just kind of um, acknowledging that that it's okay if we don't know exactly what the next step is, but we're willing to examine just kind of where we're at and what we need to do to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, because the reality is these racial reconciliation conversations aren't new. People hundreds of years ago <laughs> were also having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not just a 20, you know, 19 thing. <laughs> can I can I speak to that a little bit? Yeah, like sure. Even the question just, I love that you said keeping the people ulti- ultimately center. And, and first, um, but the question of what do I do, I think I see and we hear a lot of people, especially, again, um, the white majority say, well what, well, what do I do? What do I do? And so we were kind of talking on the way here even about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man had to choose to step over the poor man to enter his gate. And so essentially he was ignoring the plight of the people. So as we think about keeping people first, um, but the hero in the parable ends up being the poor man. And so there's essentially this responsibility of people with power and with privilege, in this case, my fellow, again, white community, white majority. Um, there is this responsibility for us to pay attention and to respond to the plight of other people. And there are consequences if we don't do that. So in terms of the question that I hear often is, well, what do I do? What do I do? And even the burden that we feel would be the bridge. What do we do next? Uh I think we need to identify the Lazarus around us, each one of us. And I come from a biblical, we come from a biblical worldview, but we all have a Lazarus outside of our gate. And so our responsibility is to find them and and to care for them. And that looks a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but who who is the Lazarus among us? I think that's a great place to stop. <clears throat> Thank you very much both for taking the time to chat and share both your experiences. Uh, a plug for BCSB The Bridge. It's a Facebook group, uh, and you can follow the Queen as she posts information about other events going on in town. (laughs) Melissa Silva, uh, Andrea Pale, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. Thank you, James. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys uh, uh, coming in and sharing your thoughts and experiences. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. BCS Race Talk is produced, edited, and marketed by me, Our graphic designer is Anthony Ramirez. Additional marketing and graphic design help by Dominique Benjamin. Thanks for listening.